You're listening to My Unlived Life, a podcast about the path not taken. I'm Miriam Robinson. A few years ago, my life fell apart in pretty dramatic fashion, and I found myself feeling that somewhere I'd made a wrong turn. I suddenly felt very far from home and family, and felt even farther from myself. I began to wonder, what if I had done things differently? We don't like to ask this question. It threatens to trap us in the past, without a map back to the here and now. So I decided to make the map. Each episode, I interview someone about another course their lives could have taken. We begin at the point where their paths diverged, and together, step by step, we imagine ourselves into the lives they never lived. Because these lives have a lot to teach us about ourselves, if we let them. This week, I spoke to psychotherapist, writer, and presenter, Philippa Perry. She is the author of Couch Fiction, How to Stay Sane, and most recently, The Book You Wish Your Parents Had Read and Your Children Will Be Glad That You Did, and is co-creator of Grayson's Art Club alongside her husband, Grayson Perry. Philippa is also the agony aunt for The Observer Magazine and an absolute master of the Twitterverse, where she can be found asking questions, sharing wisdom, and just being downright hilarious. Philippa and I discussed what her life would have been like if, as a teenager, she'd been encouraged to go to university as opposed to being dismissed because of her then-undiagnosed dyslexia. Along the way, we discussed the importance of setting boundaries, what it means to find your tribe, and a counterintuitive way to get your kids to do the dishes. One caveat, this episode was recorded in the relatively early days of the pandemic, and we had some technical problems, which made both the sound of the recording itself and the initial flow of the conversation a little choppy. She is, of course, a complete pro, but I'll admit it threw me off my game. I was tempted to scrap the whole thing for fear of releasing something imperfect, but Philippa has so much wisdom and so much to say about confidence and self-belief in particular that it seemed unfair not to share it. So here it is, My Unlived Life with Philippa Perry. So I want to get into talking about your unlived life But one thing that's interesting just from the start is that normally when I do these conversations with people, I have them tell me about their unlived life before we talk. Um, And you, when I emailed you to ask you, you know, just if if you would tell us a little bit about this beforehand uh, so I could prep, so you could prep, you were very clear that this was not okay um, and that it would interfere with your spontaneity. And what I loved about it was I loved the clarity of your boundaries. And I think boundaries are something that a lot of people struggle with. And I think women struggle with um, in particular. And I guess before we get into your unlived life, I just wanted to ask if you've always had those boundaries or if there's something you've sort of grown into over time. Oh my God, I have no boundaries at all. (laughs) I didn't feel entitled to have them um, for a very long time. And even now when I go, ah, to make this possible for me, I'm going to have to put some boundaries down. Otherwise, I'm going to get resentful. And I think this is what it is with boundaries, is that it's to stop you getting resentful. That's why we need to put them down. I, I call it, you've got your limit. That's when you lose your temper or you're resentful. And you need to put your boundary down before you get to your limit. And that just keeps me in a good mood. And I think everybody actually would prefer that they were given a boundary, then somebody started to be grumpy with them and you don't know why. And I think it's so true with children. 
that you have to put your boundary down before you reach your limit. Because kiddies would rather have uh, an earlier bedtime than an overtired mother. Yes. But to feel entitled to put down boundaries can be really hard, especially for women, because we're not encouraged to be anything other than accommodating. So I always say to uh, clients, if they have difficulty with this, I say, you know, you do run a corporation. You don't have any difficulty putting down boundaries when it comes to the good of the group or the company or whatever it is. But you can't ask your cleaner to, to do the little corners in the windows. Now, suppose you are a company and you want the best for you as a company, then it's not a problem. So just switch that mindset. So it's not, don't think it's for you personally. Think it's for the good of the household and then you'll be able to do it. Well, let's get right into it then, now that we've explored that. And I want to talk about your unlived life. And the way I think about the unlived life is essentially we all have these moments in our lives, right, where we could have turned left instead of right. We could have made one decision, but we made another. And these little choices make up our lives. They determine the the course that our lives take. But whether it's something we regret or something that we rejoice in, there is this question mark, I think, for a lot of us around what would have happened if I had married that person? What if I would have happened if I hadn't married that person? Whatever it is. And I think it's really interesting to explore in depth what that might have been. So what we're going to do is we're going to find out from you if you've got a moment in your life that you are kind of curious about exploring. We're going to go right back down to that moment. And then we're going to step, like step by step, we're going to kind of feel ourselves, imagine ourselves into your unlived life. And we'll get as far as we can get in the time that we have. Does that sound all right? It sounds fine. Great. So tell me, you've come uh, possibly, or you have in your mind a, a path you want to explore, an unlived life that you think about. Can you tell me a little bit about it? I think my unlived life is not my fault. There's no blame here. This is a blame-free zone. Well, not. Oh, well, I'm, I'm about to blame. Don't worry. <laughs> I think my unlived life is not my fault because I think I would have liked to have been more of a a doer and a, a, a public person before I actually was. Like, I think that I would have liked to have taken more risks when I was younger. I would think I would have liked to have dared to fail. Mm. But instead of daring to fail, I got a job at McDonald's. Okay, so that's... Great. So let's think about, shall we go back to that moment where you got the job at McDonald's and think about what might have happened? Is that a good place to start? Well, before that, I was quite enterprising. I had my own business, but I just got bored with it. I sold it for money. And I've never really thought about work as anything other than to get money. And It was a trainee managership at McDonald's, but it was still flipping burgers, really. So you had been running your own business. Tell me roughly where we are in time. If I'm if I'm right, this is sort of in the in the eighties was when you had your own business. Is that right with your first husband? How old do you think I am? I'm much older than that. (laughs) I had my own business in nineteen seventy six. Okay, till about nineteen. 81 and I think I might have started McDonald's around about 81 82 something like that okay I started my own business when I was about 19 20 I was working as a solicitor's clerk 
and we had to serve court process on people and we and we employed people to do that but they were useless so i became what was known as an inquiry agent so you had a you had a you were a legal secretary no i wasn't i was a paralegal yeah. i was a bit too dyslexic to be a secretary i had to have a secretary because i couldn't type because i uh, we didn't have spell check in those days i see and then, and do you think, well, let's get to, let's get to the why. I want to get to the why of the McDonald's and why you went that way. I wanted to, to go to London. I had a non-executive director role in another company that gave me some money. So I could just about manage to have my own flat as a trainee manager at McDonald's, my own flat in Sydenham, I think it was. I mean, really, these days, being dyslexic, would not have held me back like it held me back then because, you know, my daughter's very dyslexic and she had special training and she's more dyslexic than I was, but she had sort of like special lessons at school to give her coping strategies and they give you a laptop, you know, from the age of 15 or something because you're dyslexic. And uh, she went on to get, you know, a master's in chemistry and I feel like had I had those opportunities, I wouldn't be serving court process. You know, it's my own business, but, you know, it is serving court process and tracing debtors and stuff and uh, working at McDonald's. But because I, I had such a sort of lack of confidence in my abilities, I think, from the dyslexia, which is why I chose um, these roles, as it were. Um, but what would I have done had I had the courage to do something differently? So that's what we want to ask. And should we start it at the McDonald's moment? Yeah, why not? Would you still have moved to London? Where were you moving from? Oxford. I mean, I come originally from Warrington. I was just working my way down south. <laughs> I was trying to find my people. Crawling your way down to London. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, so you, you, you wrapped up the business and you moved down uh, you could still think you would have moved to London, but let's say you have some more confidence. More confidence and perhaps more education. Okay. So suppose I'd had a secondary education. I've got some really noisy birds in the garden. They're really lovely, though. It's all right. So what I think I would have liked to have done is um, got into radio production, you know, become um, – I love, I love doing radio now. I, I make documentaries for Radio 4, and I think I just would have started all that sort of stuff earlier. Okay, and would that have been, with more confidence and more education, would that have been realistic? So let's get really granular. If you moved down, without your McDonald's job, would you have still have been able to afford a place to live while you figure out how to get into radio production? Or would you have had the job before you moved down? I think they used to do, the BBC used to do these apprenticeship things. And I think I would have got one of those secured before I came down. Okay, well done. The other thing I would have might have liked to have done is be a graphic designer because I am quite arty. And I did actually go to art school later on when I was 27. Well, okay, but let's choose. Do you want to explore radio or do you want to explore graphic design? I think I could be a graphic designer if you don't mind. I, I I do not mind in the slightest. Okay, I'll be a graphic designer. Okay, so have you have you secured your graphic design job before you moved to London? I think the way I would work would I would sort of be freelance, and I think I'd be 
uh, ringing up, because we didn't have the internet then, I'd be ringing up companies and saying, I can help you with your image. I don't like the way you're coming across. I think I could get you more customers if you let me do your graphic design. And I'm quite good at talking to people, approaching people. And, you know, the best bit about when I'm making documentaries now is actually selling the idea to the commissioner. That's my fun bit. It's like, hey, what's so fun about that? Uh, it's because someone's got faith in me when I actually make a sale. Someone believes in me. And that always gives me a thrill. Because think of all that time of being dyslexic, no one believing in you that you can do anything or achieve anything because they think you're thick, because dyslexia was never diagnosed then. And then if someone goes, my God, that's a good idea, yeah, we'll buy that, it's just the greatest feeling. Dyslexia, when I was a child, was diagnosed and you were given strategies to cope with it. Mm. Yeah, it would have been completely different. What would you have done instead of serving court process? I'd be at university um, learning how to learn. Did you not go to university at all? I did when I was grown up, yeah. When you were grown up? Because what I found out was that spelling actually didn't matter that much. And uh, I started doing A-levels at night school. And then when I accumulated quite a lot, then I went to university as a mature student at age 27. So in this in this unlived life where let's say somebody somebody noticed you yeah. somebody if I'd had a teacher or a parent who knows who believed in me and had faith in me and my abilities rather than saying oh I think you should go and work at Marks and Spencers which is what my school career advisor said yeah it would have made all the difference but I didn't have that person I worked at McDonald's and then I worked as you know, a, a technician when computers started up and stuff like that. And I, I just treated these things as jobs and I never felt like I had any, I, I wasn't in them. They were just to get money. If you'd had more confidence, because let's say your career advisor hadn't told you to go and work at MS and had told you to go to university, you go to university, do you study graphic design or do you study something else? I'd probably study English literature because that was my great love. <laughs> Amazing. Where do you study? Do you stay in, are you still in Warrington then? Or do you go somewhere to study? I go to Oxford. You go to Oxford. The clever people. All of those clever people at Oxford. Yeah. Okay. So you, you study English literature undergraduate at Oxford. Um, yeah. And does that, can you, does anything in particular happen there that sort of lights a fire? Do you meet anyone? Well, I think I do. I think exactly that. I would meet people that I'd feel more affinity with. Because, I mean, I met some amazing people at McDonald's, really amazing people, really bright people, who I suppose, like me, hadn't had any sort of guidance or anything. That's why they sort of ended up there. But I think I would have met more people who had sort of curiosity about life and curiosity about what they were studying and wanted to talk about it. Because I could never have sort of discussions about books or anything with the people I met at, at McDonald's particularly. Maybe the old Stephen King novel or something, but not not the Brontes. <laughs> Just wanted to talk about the Brontes. So you're you're at Oxford, you're talking about the Brontes, you're meeting people. I'm shagging. Just everyone? Um, anyone I fancied. I loved shagging at that age. I did quite a lot. That would be the same. <laughs> 
it's nice to know some things don't change in the unlived life. That's what I really said. Right, that, that, you know, I got that right. You know, you enjoy sex, go out and have it. All right. So then we're, so we're in Oxford, we're studying literature, we're having lots of sex. And then I've got to find a career, don't I? So I think then, then I can do the radio apprenticeship. So all my ideas and things that I have, I could start using those straight away to produce interesting radio documentaries, couldn't I? That would be fun. And I know how much fun it is because I do it now, though I tend to present them, not produce them. I want to get into the, the meat of what they're about, but first just let's do really practical. Obviously, you have to move to London to do the BBC apprenticeship. Where do you live? Oh, well, I think if I was really clever, I'd live where I live now in North London. North London, where I can walk into town or bicycle into town. Thank you. Is North London financially realistic as a 21-year-old recent oh, graduate no, for you? It was then because it wasn't very expensive then. And I'd rather have a, like, a bed sit in North London than a flat in Sydenham. Okay, so you're doing the apprenticeship. How long is the apprenticeship? And you're 21, 22 years old? Yeah, how long is it? I think it's, I don't know, it's about two years, isn't it? One year, two years. And you're... You're producing great things, and then uh, where do you go next? I'm probably going to presenting next quite early on. I am a show-off. I love showing off. I, I'd get frustrated with other people trying to express my ideas. I'd go, no, let me. So you're presenting. What are you presenting? Oh, well, I'm very interested in psychology, you know, because I have become a psychotherapist. And I would be interested in all things psychoanalytic because – you know, when you feel a bit like a fish out of water, you kind of want to know why. So I did an awful lot of reading into psychology. I'm, I'm not going to do it at university because I think you get quite a lot of psychological training by reading loads of novels, actually. So I'll be doing documentaries exploring. I probably have one tracing psychoanalytic thought from Freud to the present day and having a look at the inheritors of Freud and what they've done with it. And then I'd probably do the same for the inheritors of developmental psychology and that sort of stuff. Yeah, I'd have a great time. All right. So you're doing those. Um, let's talk about your personal life. Oh, well, you see, my personal life in real life is a bit of a disaster in that I married far too young. I married when I was 20, right in the middle of all the shagging. Can I ask why? Why did you marry so young? I married so young, I think, because I thought I couldn't believe that anybody wanted to marry me. So if here was somebody who wanted to marry me, I thought, wow, no one else ever will. That's incredible. So it was sort of low self-esteem, I think. And he had amazing cheekbones. He looked like Freddie Mercury, except he, he claimed to be straight. <laughs> and... <laughs> And, uh, yeah, I mean, we weren't very well suited, but I did stay married for until I was about 27. Mm. I'm sure he's a nice guy now. I don't know. I've lost touch. And it ended because you were not well suited, in a nutshell. <laughs> it sort of disintegrated, and then he moved out. And then I think, mm, if he's moved out, I don't think we're married anymore. And then I started divorce proceedings. And he said, well, you started divorce proceedings. I said, yeah, but you don't live here anymore with me. Seems like a good idea. 
I feel that I was getting some signals from you. <laughs> Came back for a pair of socks and then left again. Yeah, I thought something was wrong. So, you know. Okay, well, so in your unlived life, you have not married this guy because you're living in London having a wonderful time. I've got self-belief and uh, self-confidence in my unlived life. So I don't mm. need anyone to think I'm worth marrying in order to feel okay about myself. So if somebody thinks I am worth marrying and wants to marry me, and actually, if I look at them, I'm not that keen. You know, lovely cheekbones, shame about the patriarchal attitudes or whatever it is. <laughs> those are a bummer, those patriarchal attitudes. Oh, we don't want those, thanks very much. <laughs> lovely cheekbones, terrible critical voice. No. In North, in North London, in your bed set, you still, is there still lots of shagging, question one? Yeah, there will be lots of shagging still, okay. I think. Yeah, definitely. Well, let's think. So you've done your, you've done a couple of years of presenting documentaries. You've sort of uh, kind of cemented yourself as an expert on these psychoanalysts, presumably, right? Yeah, I don't know if I've done that without any psychoanalytical training, but yeah. Okay. Do you do some psychoanalytical training? I think I do that, but as a sort of part-time hobby, not as a career. In my real life, I did it as a career, didn't I? But that, I didn't really start studying that till I was about 30, 35, 36. So. And, and in your unlived life, is it? do you start that sooner? Well, in my lived life and my unlived life, I am reading an awful lot about psychotherapy and psychoanalysis and philosophy and stuff. I'll be reading all that stuff and making documentaries about it as I go. And are you, and do you move to telly? Let's say you're you're probably you're still very young. You're probably 25, 26 at this point. I think it's the first time I did my first gritty documentary, don't you think? <laughs> yeah, like serious deep dive. What is it? What's it about? Yeah. Oh, I think I'll be exploring uh, all the terrible because at that time in my real life, I was getting groped. I mean, I enjoyed shagging, yes, but I was getting groped a lot by people I did not want to shag, like dirty old men. So I think I will do an expose of all the dirty old men in telly. That's my <laughs> Okay. So you become a you become a, 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 a raging campaigner against the patriarchy with your with your uh, documentaries. My amusing documentaries. They're amusing, you see. They're not just sort of like very, very serious. They'll be amusing and light, but then they'd have a message of steel right in there like that decimating everybody. everybody wants to watch them because they're entertaining but then they would decimate whatever I was trying to expose and so it's okay so your profile is is rising oh, rapidly huge by now I'm yeah. I'm thinking perhaps it's time to leave the bed set do you leave the bed set oh yeah I think I bought this house that I'm in now yeah okay so you bought the house but you're on your own still oh no it's about time I met my husband now okay where do you meet him evening classes very curious, very curious mind. See, so I'm meeting. I actually did meet him at, at evening classes at creative writing evening classes. We met, and this is you said this when in real life it was you were 29 when you met him. Is that right? Yeah, well, I think I'll be going to the same class if it's all the same to you to meet him. Again. Is it a creative writing class? Does that feel right? Yeah, because deep down want to write books. <laughs> all right, so you go to a creative. What do you want to write books about in your unlived life? Well, I'd want, I'd want to write a novel. I, I still want to write a novel, actually. It's still a bit of my unlived life. I'd want to write novels, yeah. So you, you sign up for this creative writing course. You're now roughly 28, 29 as well. You haven't yet bought the house you're living in, so you're still either in your bedsit or maybe you've upgraded like a smith. 
No, I'm in this house now. I would have inherited some money from a dead aunt because that's what really happened. Well, and that would presumably still, that would obviously still happen in your unlived life. Okay, so you inherit some money, you buy the house you're in now, you want to write fiction, and so you go to a creative writing class where you meet your husband, Grayson. Does he move in with you? Yeah, and then we live happily ever after. That's like real life as well. Some things are fine that I don't want to change, except for in my unlived life, we have a lot more children. Okay. Because we only had one because we didn't have enough money to have any more, you know, really. Uh, and be comfortable. I never like being stretched. So I think we would have had five or six children. I only had one. In my own life, I have far more children. Why do you not like being stretched? Uh, I don't like worrying about money. I'd rather be thrifty and not get into debt and not have very much than owing someone money. I don't want to work for a bank. So you're 29, you've met Grayson, you're in your house. Now, you, one thing that you said, and you've done your creative writing course with the desire to write a novel. Um, one thing that you said is you think you would have a lot more children. In your, in your real life, first of all, did you have your daughter Florence straight away? No, no, we had five years together. And, and would you have waited that long in your unlived life? I think I would have waited three years in my unlived life. Okay. Started having children at 33 and popped one out every two years until I was like 42, I think. What is that about? Why do you think that you would have had so many more children? Uh, Because with hindsight, I realized that I love children. Uh, I love me with children. I love being with children. I love myself when I'm with my child. Uh, but I, I thought, oh, I'll wait until she turns out okay first, make sure, you know, I can do this. <laughs> but the time she turned out okay, I thought, oh, 50's a bit old, damn. <laughs> I needed a lot more life to fit in those children, I think. And I think it would have enriched me to have so many more children. Well, let's 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 sort of game it through a little bit. So you're sort of 33 and you have your first child. Now, obviously motherhood and career are always two kind of challenging things to balance. So are you still making your big documentaries at this stage? I'm just going to concentrate on the novel. I can do it in little 20 minute snatches while the baby sleeps. Okay. And um, what is the novel? What is the novel? Mm, Well, I can't give that away yet because I haven't written it yet, (laughs) but I do have it in my mind and I do play it over in my mind all the time. The one that you're thinking about now in your in your real life is the one that you tackle earlier, is what you're saying, in your unlived life. Yeah. And then I trace the – it's going to be a saga, and I'll trace it back through history for, for subsequent volumes. Excellent. Okay, so you're basically – essentially, so you're going – and do they come out around the same time as your children? So are we sort of going child novel, child part two, child part three? Yeah, but then I'll get fed up of writing novels and what okay. I'm going to do then is just get back on course with what I do now. I think the novels would have been instead of being a psychotherapist. When in your real life did you start your psychotherapeutic training? At about 35, 36 and started seeing clients like uh, from, I was working at a drug and alcohol center and I worked at a woman's therapy center from about 38 and then I had a private practice from about 40. Right. 
Okay, so this doesn't happen. You end up instead sort of age 33, 35, 37, 39, you have these children. Let's let's talk about your children and the corresponding books, and then we can figure out when you shift gears away from writing again. First child, boy or girl? Oh, they're all girls. They're all girls. Yeah, I know. It's like Mrs. Bennett. (laughs) (laughs) I've never had a girl child. I can't imagine what it's like having a boy child. I expect it's lovely. I don't know. But I have looked after little boy babies, and I always find, oh, my God, how do I clean these genitals? (laughs) Don't know how to cope with these ones. It does look very confusing, doesn't it? Over the scrotum. How do I delicately clean it, you know? this is me doing it I have done it you know I love podcasts so much but this is a rare moment where I really wish that our listeners could see what's happening with your yeah, hands I'm cleaning a little baby boy you're just just miming it <clears throat> poo off a scrotal sack um I have done that and I thought oh I couldn't do this every day but I'm sure I could and I'm sure I'm sure fine. you would love your baby boy I'm sure it's I for, would. and is it do have we decided is it four girls or is it five girls uh five five girls so that's their age, 33, 35, 37, 39, and 41. You have your last yeah. daughter. Yeah. Okay. And how about the books? How many books are in the saga? Oh, I probably have a child. I have a book with every child. So I probably have about five, I think. Does each book get dedicated to each child? That's a great idea. Thank you for that. Happy to help. That's what I'm here for. Um, what's going on with Grayson during this period he's uh, making art and riding motorbikes yeah and going to parties is he an involved parent with all these five children yeah very involved like he was with our daughter he's teaching them all to draw and did you ever because I think about this a lot with my daughter as uh, my daughter's an only child as well and I and I I do regret that she doesn't have a sibling sometimes and then other times I don't yeah I feel the same I feel the same like sometimes I mean, I think she likes being an only yeah. child. I think she's fine as an only child. And she wouldn't be who she is now if she wasn't an only child. She'd be a different person. And I don't know whether she would have been happier or more miserable with siblings or not. Mm. You don't know, do you? No, there's no way to tell. There's no way to tell. But I think my life, I don't know if it would be happier or mis- more, more miserable if I'd had more children. But it certainly would have been richer in one mm. way or another more populated we could definitely say it would have been more populated it would have been more populated yeah i probably wouldn't be in this podcast i'd probably be going shut up will you <laughs> would they all be out of the house by now it'd be pretty close to all of the house by now yeah probably yeah well okay so but in so in your unlived life you're sort of in your early 40s and you've gone back to documentaries but now you're presenting them um and the kids are sort of probably slowly getting into school and are you are you managing? Are you managing the juggle? Oh yeah, so cool. <laughs> yeah. I ask for help when I need it, and the children are also wonderfully cooperative <laughs> and helpful. <laughs> I feel like I feel like if you, I, I try not to go into fantasy with these unlived lives, but on occasion I think it's nice. They're all fantasy. An unlived life is fantasy. We can't we can't do anything about that. I know. I think allowing allowing us things like, yes, the children are all delightfully well-behaved at all times is definitely one. Well, the thing is, like, when I had my kid and she wanted to get involved aged 14 months in the way the dishwasher worked and stacked, I would let her 
just play with the dishwasher for hours, taking things out of it, putting them all over the floor, putting things back in it. And I would encourage her in this. And uh, no, no washing up did get done. <laughs> and she gradually developed a love of the dishwasher because she associated the dishwasher with being held and loved and exploring and having a nice time. So now she's really good at emptying and loading the dishwasher. And so, and likewise, you know, when you're trying to push a hoover around the house, she wanted to get involved and I just let her. And so she is actually really helpful. And it's because I never said age nine, right, you've got to do your chores. But she just associated being helpful and doing stuff with love. So if you want a child to do something, let them associate it with love from the very, very beginning. And then it won't feel like a chore. It will feel like something nice to do. I mean, just in the same way as we play cards together, and that's sort of associating love. We still love playing cards now. It's not just something we did while she was a child. It was like something we do now, and it's associated for both of us with love. What I love about that is it's a it's a really nice, subtle distinction from what I think I see in a lot of parenting kind of manuals or parents around here, which is to sort of gloss over these things and pretend sort of that they're really happy things, if you see what I mean. So it's sort of when you go like, now we get to unload the dishwasher or, hey, honey, it's your favorite spinach for dinner, you know, and you just know that the kid's sitting there going, you're not fooling me, you know. I don't like insincerity. Yeah. I'm, I'm not a fan of it. I can see that. But so we're going to assume that, shall we assume that you've got the same approach to parenting with your five kids and that they all grow up and you continue to, and they're going to school, presumably in North London. Central London, probably, yeah. Yep. And you are presenting these documentaries and you continue to do this for how long? I might get bored. I get bored easily. For the documentaries. So what, what might you do next? Oh, I think I'll... Instead of presenting difficult documentaries that take a lot of research to do, I think I'll start uh, co-presenting a program about participatory arts with my husband. Oops, done that in real life as well. But you do that a little earlier on? No, I've joined up to me now. All right. Well, I think we're I think we're getting close in that case. I, the only other thing I, I want to ask about is the novels. How do they do in the market? Oh, they're all bestsellers. And were you uh, were you able to get a publisher because you already had a decent profile? No, I was able to get a publisher because the novels are so compelling and they reveal so much to the reader about themselves when they're reading it, and they're just absolutely amazing. <laughs> and you said you and you when you move to documentary making, uh, when you move back to presenting, and then you move on to do um, your work with your husband. Does the writing stop completely? Oh, I'll probably keep something ticking over. Mm. Okay, well, we can watch this space. So we've now we've now caught up. Um, is there anything else before before we wrap things up and just chat a little bit um, about sort of the overall experience? Is there anything else? You know, doing the exercise has made me realize that my lived life ain't so bad. But from... My lived life from aged three to aged 29 wasn't so great. 
And I think that what happened at age 29 is I met my tribe and I met people that I found encouraging. So then I was able to live my hitherto unlived life from there. But I was still a slow starter, I think. But, you know, I'm, I didn't become a novelist. I became a psychotherapist. And that has worked out really well for me. And I'm really glad I did it. But, you know, I might have been a novelist instead. One of my highlights from this interview is when Philippa talks about her favorite part of making documentaries, which is just pitching the initial concept. She said that in that moment, when you've won the pitch, you know that someone believes in you, believes in your vision and in your ability to execute it. And that for her is the real high. Philippa's unlived life didn't diverge dramatically from her real life except in the crucial difference that with someone who believed in her as a teenager, she was able to get started creating everything she loved much sooner. She got to skip over a period which for her felt mundane and unadventurous. In her real life, that ability to create only came once she met, as she called it, her tribe, once she felt she truly belonged. It's such an interesting reminder of the importance of self-belief and how crucial our relationships with others are in the formulation of that self-belief. And what I loved about Philippa's path was that, blessed with that self-belief from an earlier stage, she ended up creating more for the world. More documentaries, more books, she even had more children. Philippa had to navigate her way out of an unaccepting world all by herself. But ultimately, with more confidence, she chose to give more back in art, in relationships, and in love.